Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our show is sponsored by Moo, which makes things that help you stand out and look great. If you've got Moo business cards, I promise you, you will make an impression that they will not soon forget. To learn more, visit Moo.com. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. So, Jessica, we've been in the air a lot recently. Uh, we ran into each other in Chicago at the um, How Design Live conference, and then you went on to San Francisco for a few days. What did you see while you were on your travels? San Francisco is an amazing place. Um, they seem to be managing very well with the water shortage. Uh, lots, it's a big topic of discussion there. Dry farming. Uh, I heard about all sorts of ways uh, people are managing with olive oil and vineyards, and uh, everyone seems to have glorious gardens and beautiful citrus trees everywhere. Uh, it's an interesting place. I was at Google where everyone rides bicycles from to get from building to building that are, in fact, the colors of the Google logo, which is to say red, yellow, blue, and green, which I found very funny. No one wears helmets, I might point out. But the, the design culture in California, I have to say, is a very different one than, than on the East Coast, and it's one that I'm still learning about. Oh, really? How, how so? Well, I think um, the word design may mean different things in tech, in technology companies. Uh, I think it's often used as a euphemism for a kind of creative thinking, for a kind of problem solving, which is not to say that we uh, Northeastern-based uh, or East Coast-based uh, designers don't see design <laughs> as problem solving. But I, I think that they have these large teams. They work together. There's lots of uh, collaboration. There's a kind of transparency and fluidity to the way they work and they prototype and they develop things. Uh, classically trained graphic designers of a certain generation, and I would probably put myself in here somewhere, often find ourselves scratching our heads a little bit, not to be, this is not an elitist position, this is not a defensive position, but I think we find ourselves somewhat uh, stymied by the notion that designers that work in these technology companies are making products because we can't always see the products that they're making. Like you, I have to admit, as a classically trained, um, maybe like old, aged, nearly, you know, uh, well on its way to his grave designer, it just seems like a very foreign way of like doing design to me. And again, like you, I don't, I blame myself for sort of not understanding it. But I, you know, I have to admit when you visit your Facebook page and you sort of like interact with it, you're just kind of having this seamless interaction with all these different elements and, you know, the the hand of those designers, the authorship of those designers is completely invisible. And as someone who was kind of, you know, who way back in design school in the mid-20th century was like studying posters by Cassandra and Mila Brockman and had ambitions to do posters like that that I did myself that I could sign and people would say I like that poster you did you know I mean you wonder what's the anachronism what's the future and how you know will that future endure as the posters by Cassandra have endured you know it's an interesting cultural uh, shift, really a seismic cultural shift. And, the, and you just described it, I think, extremely well. I remember uh, doing a story for ID Magazine years ago where I went to a private school in New York and watched these very young kids working in what was then a pretty, pretty relatively new computer lab. And the thing that I remarked upon at the time was that the children working who were maybe six or seven years old grabbed the mouse interchangeably. And I remember coming home and thinking, if anybody my age grabbed the mouse for me, I'd smack them. 
right? And it was the beginning for me, it was like my first indication of what was a culture of transparency that I really had to, to will myself to understand. Because it was not, to your point about the signature, the imprimatur of the artist, the idea that creativity or creation came from a level of authorship in one voice. I think that these young people working in these technology companies have come of age and learned about design, which is not to say they're any less principled, arguably, than we are. If they want to be, they certainly can be. But I think culturally what has shifted is they work in teams and they don't have the same kind of understanding of one person making one thing at one time. And at the same time, the idea of one person making one thing at one time still seems to have some currency and value and inspire some passion. I think at Facebook, they have something called the uh, analog, you know, uh, laboratory. Research the analog lab. research laboratory. Can you describe what that is? What they felt at Facebook was that um, a lot of people really missed making things that were messier, that were more uh, artisan-like, that were physical and three-dimensional and maybe involved things like ink and wood and chiseling and presses, um, and that maybe there was a role to play for those people who wanted to do that. And they, they took uh, an area at Facebook and they made this thing called the Analog Research Lab. It, it is a wonderful place. It is, there's an incredible studio manager, a guy called Nick Wilson. Um, there's a coordinator there named Hannah Fletcher, who's tremendous. Uh, and both of these people, in conjunction with a guy called Scott Bombs, who I met, the three of them really preside over the sort of the dominion that is the research lab. There is letterpress. There is silkscreen. There are woodworking tools. Uh, anybody can go in there and make things. They themselves uh, make posters and make things that they can then put out in the kind of campus that is Facebook that reveal the kind of handmade artisan-like quality of these things, which both advertises, in a sense, what is what is capable of doing there and also sort of keeps it alive in terms of the spirit of, of being a community of makers. Uh, and I was invited there uh, a year ago. I, I gave a lecture at Facebook, and I went back last weekend to teach a workshop uh, with a charter school um, uh, in, in East Oakland full of uh, teenagers who had never been to Silicon Valley before and were unbelievable kids, incredibly wow, gracious, amazing wow. what, teachers. What was that like? What was that like? This was really great. This was really something that I want to do again. Design Observer partnered with the Analog Research Lab and 17 kids, I think, that came from a school called Alternatives in Action in East Oakland. I did a drawing workshop with them for about 90 minutes, and then we took their drawings and made film and silkscreened them. Uh, in, we had two different silkscreen presses set up and silkscreened them onto posters, and then we did a crit of the posters and their drawings, and then they took all the posters back and hung them in their school. And this is a school that's really been through a pretty tough couple of years. The teacher told me that they, they didn't, it was freezing there, that the heating wasn't working, and they, one of the teachers had to go to Walmart and get blankets for the kids. These kids did not whine, they did not complain, they were gracious, they were interested. There was no eye rolling. They were totally willing to jump in and learn how to do this. I was really blown away by their spirit and their in interest. They, they looked at everything and they asked intelligent questions. Um, it was really an incredible experience and I, I hope we get to do it again. Yeah, no, it, it, this, this kind of lingering or maybe even inexhaustible desire that people have to actually make things, make physical things that they can sort of look at when they're done and say, this is here and it, we're, it will kind of, it's a lasting thing that I've, you know, caused to uh, come into being and will stay here on earth. It's, um, it's, it's a funny urge that we have as, uh, as a species maybe. And um, it's interesting to see that in the heart of a place that has really done so much to dematerialize the world, to kind of turn it into you know, 
um, you know, digits and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an experience that's one pixel deep, that they're still committed to that sort of, um, uh, you know, I made this with all the mess that it, did, uh, that it actually entails. Right. And I think what was what, what was so unusual here was not only are they giving back um, to the people at Facebook, but they made this effort to go out on a Saturday and give back to these kids in East Oakland. There's been quite a bit of dissent from local people, I think, in San Francisco, not in the design community, within the design community, about how these companies can start to give back. And for all the talk we have of social design and social entrepreneurship, uh, this remains something that we're not seeing enough of. And I think this effort at Facebook to open up that analog lab to these kids is really significant, and I am all for it and supporting this kind of thing, because it's not that hard to do. I mean, it, you know, I flew out there, it was an afternoon, and it was incredibly rewarding, and I think these kids got a lot out of it. And and it's not like, you know, it, I think there's something just in incredibly rewarding about giving back in kind, right? Giving back the thing you know how to do. I can teach 15 kids how to draw for 90 minutes, or I can at least start them drawing or getting them to appreciate drawing. Hey, um, at the How Design Live conference in Chicago, Moo at their booth had this um, Chandler and Price pilot letterpress design, uh, 100 years old, more than 100 years old. They were making these beautiful, beautiful limited edition note cards. Did you see that? I did, and the press itself was so exquisite. It was this small tabletop platen press, uh, and they brought somebody from their London office uh, to run it, a guy called Felix, who was extremely knowledgeable, and a lot of the people coming to the conference got to actually physically move the letterpress and make the impression themselves. I was one of the fortunate people that got to do that. It's, oh, it's very exciting. Yeah. It's really fun. It's really, really yeah. exciting. But there's something All this so talk of letterpress. great about um, these analog machines in this uh, digital age that you were submerged in in San Francisco. My father... Uh, sold printing presses for a living, um, and um, if you you know if you wanted to buy like a Heidelberg or a Mealy, or even a, a Linotype machine in northeastern Ohio, you probably had to go through Lenny Barut back in the '60s or early '70s. On Saturdays, he would take me to their shop floor. They used to buy a lot of old printing presses, uh, you know, from companies that had gone bankrupt, and they'd refurbish them and sell them. And so they had this big shop where they had, like, lots of guys kind of retooling these uh, uh, presses that they had bought secondhand. And the smell of it was just amazing, and the sound of it was amazing. And I remember at one point he had... Um, uh, a lot, an old linotype machine. I'm, you probably have seen one of them over your lifetime, but that was, uh, you know, the incredible contraption by which um, uh, uh, lead type used to be made to order. You sort of had a typewriter at one end, and you'd type letters, and uh, the cast would kind of move in position. Hot lead would pour into the cast, and uh, it would kind of create line by line the type that then would become your local newspaper or a book or something else. And uh, the thing was just so improbably complex, this Rube Goldberg symphony. Yeah, it was like, it was of, like the ENIAC. You know, it was insane. And later, when they got rid of some of the, the lead type part, there was a photo typesetter that, that they made. Because I know we had one when I was at Yale, the very first thing that, that we moved past the letterpress at Yale to have. And I remember in order to output your type, you would actually spec the, the sizes and you would hear the lenses clicking into place. And then it would be done and you would send it to print and you would hear it come out. And you had to take it downstairs into the basement and you needed to bring a friend because you had to pull the galleys of paper out of this thing. We used to call it typographic midwifery. 
because you had to physically <laughs> just like pull this thing out. I mean, it's so antediluvian to think about now, but it was really this is how we got no. galleons. This is how this is how it all happened. My, I remember my I remember standing looking in awe at this linotype machine, and my dad sitting standing silently at my side, and finally saying, "You know, the guy that invented this died insane." And that always stuck with me. I, I don't even know whether it's true or not, but it's sort of the idea that like you had to be crazy to conceive of something this complex. Uh, just really kind of like made this impression on me. All this reminds me that um, our friend, uh, design observer. Contributor Eric Speakerman has just gone backwards in time a little bit and renewed his love for letterpress printing. He opened this thing called P98A, which is a workshop for letterpress printing last year, and I think in Berlin. Uh, there's wonderful videos of this that we'll put on our site. That it's an unbelievable print shop, and in, in true Eric Speakerman style, there's multiple presses. They're all lined up like little <laughs> soldiers. He just makes it, and he's so excited about talking about it. I think that you know, after 35 years on a Mac, he wanted to get back to touching things. Hey, hang on, hang on, hang on. I think we can let uh, Eric explain what letterpress is and why he loves it. You don't just hit the button, delete, there's no delete, there is no return, you have to touch everything. You have to think about it, you have to plan a little more, uh, and whatever you do is fairly permanent. So that's the practical thing, which is kind of unusual. Do you think that, that do you think those processes actually um, affect the way you think? Like, like, I think Eric sort of says, you know, the material you're working with shapes the idea, the, the constraints that a letterpress uh, uh, printing process imposes actually makes you think differently about what you're designing, how you're going to output it, etc. It's it, the same. I mean, what kind of effect you know, does me, it have broadly? To me, it's a parallel argument to electric cars. So if you know you only have 100 miles, you're going to be very careful what roads you take. And I think Eric's point about printing is that you don't mess around. You can't do, you know, Command Z. You can't edit undo. You can't fuss around with it. You really have to. It's time and materials, and it's about planning, and it and it sort of obliges you to be kind of disciplined, in a way that I think is quite refreshing for some people, for many people, maybe for most people. But I, I think it's that kind of the constraints, the, the idea that the constraints shape your idea is what I think he finds quite fascinating, and and uh, and I think he has a point. I, he does have a point. We just did a uh, project in my office where we uh, did part of it using um, uh, letterpress. It was a uh, uh, a piece that we're publishing in an analog form that the filmmaker Errol Morris originally published online with the New York Times, in which he uh, determined through a uh, blind online test that of six typefaces that he had selected, that Baskerville was the typeface that most provoked people to believe whatever it was. Uh, and Bradbury whatever, Thompson whatever would, have believed, would, would have agreed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, yeah, so Errol Morris's uh, theory was that uh, typefaces are, the messages are more believable when they're set in one typeface versus another typeface, which probably the, the favorite whipping boy uh Comic Sans being the one that would be the least credible. So we we painstakingly uh, decided to print this piece that had run originally as a uh, as a series of online uh, serialized articles that uh, Errol wrote in in his column on the New York Times website. We printed them as a kind of classic little broadside pamphlet in Baskerville, and we aped the typographic style of Baskerville's 
uh, settings of the Holy Bible and the Book of Common Prayer and the kind of work he was doing at his press in the late 18th century. And it really is interesting sort of like how different the 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 visual tone is, the color on the page, how when you're sort of uh, working with those kind of restraints, the effect is different. And it's not just about Part of it is sort of your um, kind of creating this nostalgic sense of how they used to do it back in the day. But part of it is sort of succumbing to those limitations that Eric Speakerman talks about, kind of feeling that, you know, when you can only go 100 miles on a single charge, you have to select your route very, very carefully. I think also Eric is, I mean, he's making type using 3D printers and laser cutters. Uh, we saw when we watched the Mood demonstration in Chicago last week, they worked from a polymer plate, beautiful polymer plate that was made by the people at Boxcar Press. Uh, and I think that one of the things that is really intriguing about working in this tactile fashion is to not see it as an either or binary opposite from working online or on, on your computer, but to see it to be somewhat flexible and porous and see it kind of as an agnostic uh, system that, and he, you know, he's going. So he's making laser cuttings, and he's making prints, and he's probably still working on his computer. And the idea that you can actually feed back into your vocabulary the idea that that you use some machines that aren't actually powered by Apple, it's kind of great. Did you ever do actual letterpress yourself? I not only did letterpress, but I learned how to use a Vandercook, which is a sort of mm. a classic letterpress. Uh, we had a manual one and we had an electric one. And I learned on the manual one, and I learned it at the same time I was working on my very first Mac. So this would be the late 80s. Um, I had a wonderful teacher in graduate school who gave us an assignment to design a series of four book jackets. And we were asked to do the very same typographic uh, composition using uh, a Vandercook and the type that was in the type shop, which is to say metal type, because there were no polymer plates, which we'll explain in a moment. And the exact same assignment had to be rendered using what I, I'm embarrassed to say I think was probably Quark Express 1.0. And this was back in, in the very early days. We were all working on, on early Macs. Mac, I think I had a Mac SE. still had floppy disks. Maybe, maybe it was, it was let, letter set 1, 2, 3. Yes, it was not letter set, but it was pretty damn close to letter set, <laughs> let me tell you. And you know, after <laughs> I was done walking in the snow 12 miles and milking the cows, I went and did this assignment. Oh, no, but yeah. you know what? It, Michael, it was really a great assignment because you went backwards and forwards from the Mac to the Vandercook, and uh, I still have the eight book jackets I made, and you want to know the most amazing thing? I dug them out recently. The most amazing thing, the most amazing thing to me is that the letterpress ones look like I did them yesterday. Really? Really? And the Mac ones look like crap. Why? Because they're just, because they were just, they were basically, we we did them on paper that we ran through what was then a laser printer, right? I mean, Apple had made laser print. Apple was actually making these printers back then. So in fact, whereas, whereas the letterpress type, I mean, it's still, the impression is still there. It hasn't gotten faded by time, it still really looks like this very kind of, you know, lovely tactile thing. And I think that's one of the great things about letterpress is that it really stands the test of time. Yeah. And, and no, if you think about it, um, not to get all uh, relativistic and historical all at once, but, uh, you know, when letterpress was invented, when movable type was invented, those were seen as technologies that were going to destroy the fine tradition of hand lettering and the whole industry of scribes at monasteries kind of dutifully copying out long manuscripts and somehow the impersonal nature of uh, 
Gutenberg's invention and the subsequent inventions to that would somehow change things forever, mess things up. And of course they did. Uh, and they changed not only the way one designed, but the one, the way one reads information and the one, the way one takes in passages, the very process of reading, I think changes when these things change, just as going from print to screen changes the way you take in information. But each one of these things sort of, um, uh, we tend to look at them as a, as a, as if it's inevitable that each new thing as part of its process of ascendancy obliterates all that came before it and yet we kind of learn again and again that television doesn't kill radio radio just moves on to new forms that can take interesting innovative new paths and that and uh, podcasting is going to slam everything yeah exactly it's like all these things are sort of can coexist in a in a world where you can you know listen to a vinyl record and you can listen to a podcast and you can uh, tweet something to your friend and you can uh, talk into your watch and God knows what other crazy things we'll be doing tomorrow and they can all kind of coexist and in every household could be a beautiful um, letterpress printer in the living room just as we once had pianos just as we also could update our Facebook pages and send them tweets all happily coexisting in this wonderful world what a world what a world Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed, including a video of Eric Speakerman talking about why he opened his letterpress studio, Galerie P98A. In between episodes, you should keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You heard about those things earlier in the podcast. Let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash theobservatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. A big thank you to Moo for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. See you next time.